But we are in Isaiah 25 this morning. Isaiah 25, it's just to the right of the middle of most Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have it up on the screens in just a bit. But I want to take several minutes to introduce this idea to you that we'll see in Isaiah 25, starting by connecting where we're going with what we just sung. When we sing a song, a Christmas hymn like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we are placing ourselves in the shoes of those saints of old who were waiting for the Christ to come. People who were waiting for that promise from the prophet Isaiah that one day Emmanuel, God with us, would come. And he did come. Matthew 1 tells us about the arrival and the birth of Jesus. Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was written in the prophet Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But on this side of Christ's coming, we, today, we also sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as a people who are waiting for him to come again. That's how the New Testament ends. Keith referred to it from the book of Revelation. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And then John the Apostle responds, Come, Lord Jesus. In fact, so many of our best Christmas hymns do this kind of double-layered thing that we see in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It was also in Joy to the World, which we sang earlier. Yes, we sing of what happened already and what we have now. We rejoice for the Lord has come. And we say to the earth, let earth receive her king. But we also sing from that old Christmas hymn, no more let sins and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his glories known far as the curse is found. Well, that hasn't all happened yet. Not in its fullest sense. That's still to come. Jesus' coming again should be the Christian's longing and prayer. Not least at Christmas, but not just at Christmas. Christian, are you waiting for and longing for and praying for the coming, the return of Jesus? Are you longing for more of Christ than this world as it is can contain? Are you longing for an age with more Christ than this age can contain? Do you long to see him face to face? Do you pray for him to make all things right and all things new? Or is Christmas enough for you? Is one coming of Jesus enough for you? You know, forgiveness, church, Bible, fellowship, and singing. Is that enough for you? I think for me at times, I live like Christmas is enough. 
I live like one coming of Jesus is enough. But at other times, by God's grace, I see enough hurt and loss and sorrow and sickness and death and brokenness and sin, not least my own, that I, that I long for nothing less than another world, nothing less than Christ showing up, splitting the sky open, and putting all things aright. Now, if you're not a Christian, you hear that kind of talk and you think we Christians are crazy. Maybe you'd say, hey, <laughs> Christmas is fine. You know, the whole manger scene, the birth, no room in the inn, all that, that's quaint. But Jesus returning to this earth, the, Jesus ushering in, ushering in someday another age and transforming this world as we know it, a second coming of Christ. You might scoff at that. But I would just ask you how you think this story is going to end. Just nuclear obliteration one day? A global famine? An asteroid which takes us all out? Or, or maybe you'd say, I don't know, probably no end. Just an endless cycle of deaths and births and deaths and births and deaths and births. Well, I can tell you that Christianity, if nothing else, offers an infinitely more hopeful ending to the story. We Christians unapologetically believe that this world is going somewhere, that it was made with purpose, that there's a good God behind it all, and he's in control, and he has a plan, and he eventually will right all wrongs. We're banking on it. So turn with me to Isaiah 25, if you're not there in your Bibles yet, and let's look at this. As we continue to think through this theme of waiting in the Bible as we're in this season of Advent, I wanted to take one of these weeks to think about the day when the waiting is over. There is coming a time when the waiting is over. Christmas did not mark the end of our waiting. There is an end coming. And it will be glorious and grand. And it should occupy our thoughts and our hopes often as believers. Isaiah 25, we'll read four verses starting in verse 6. On this mountain of the Lord of hosts, I'm sorry, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." 
It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Our outline for this sermon will be a bit unconventional. Usually we have three to four points or so, and we work our way through a passage from top to bottom successively in different sections. What I'd like to do this week with this passage is take three passes over the same material. Here's the outline. I'll tell you up front. Present griefs. Secondly, future glories. And thirdly, present foretastes of the future. Those will make more sense as we work our way through them. First, consider the present griefs that this passage assumes. The focus of the passage is certainly on the sorrows and griefs that will be reversed, will be replaced someday. That's the good news. But before we get to the good news, we have to fully understand the bad news that the good news seeks to address in our passage. Just key into verse 8. There are a string of griefs or heartaches that are familiar to us. Death, tears, reproach. Let's think about each of those. Death. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, humanity has been plunged under, plunged into a sentence of death. You see that played out in the book of Genesis. You think of Genesis 5, where there's that genealogy, so-and-so lived so many years, he had this son, and then he died. And it just keeps going generation after generation with that refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The day you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. Adam and all his offspring die. You think of the book of Genesis. We were just studying it together. You think of how it's a story of so many things, yes, but, but these patriarchs and their families, they just keep dying. And there's a burial. It ends with two deaths and two burials. And so we're not surprised to see the same things played out in our headlines every day. People die. We're not surprised. Though we are, it always shocks us. It always takes our breath away when it hits close to home. But we shouldn't be surprised. When people die, this world is under a sentence of death because sin has entered this world. Our culture tries to sanitize death, to tuck it away, to put it behind the curtain. I'll never forget being in Guatemala some years ago. I was there to see our missionaries there. And and while we were eating dinner at a restaurant the first night there, a motorcycle with three people on it, yes, three people on it, turned in front of traffic, and they were hit by a car. All three people died instantly. 
And that wasn't that remarkable, except what was remarkable to me, what I will never forget, is that the bodies remained in the street, uncovered, for more than an hour, as long as we were there at the restaurant. That wouldn't happen in the U.S., would it? In the U.S., we cover that stuff up. We clean that up real fast, because we don't like seeing that. But are we really better off for doing that? Ecclesiastes says that a funeral home is better than a maternity ward. That it's better to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting because death is the end for all mankind and the wise take it to heart. That's why the funeral home is better than the maternity ward because we think a little more clearly about the brevity of life when we're at a funeral. We're forced to think about the fragility of life when someone healthy is taken from us unexpectedly. We are sometimes reminded painfully of the permanence of death. It's irreversible. There's no going back. And we need to own up to and feel the brevity, the fragility, the permanence, the ugliness of death. It's not only all right to hate death. We should. It's not natural. It's not the way God designed this world to be. But it is just. And there are things we can learn by paying attention to it and owning up to it if we think theologically about it. That's death. But then take this next sorrow here. Tears in verse 8. Tears. Tears are a curious thing, aren't they? God has made us with emotions and sometimes our emotions get strong enough and unavoidable enough that we emit a salty discharge from our eyes. And it rolls down our cheeks where others might see. We're not robots, are we? We're not rocks. We're not even animals. We're human beings. We cry. Scientists can put tears under a microscope and observe a chemical difference between emotional tears and what they call reflex tears. Reflex tears are when wind or sand gets in our eyes and they well up with moisture, right? There's a chemical difference in emotional tears. Now, some of us cry more than others. Some of us haven't cried in years. Some of us cried at the last time we watched a Hallmark Christmas movie. But in general, we cry, and we have good reasons to cry in this broken and fallen world. Life is hard. People die. And some of us even cry when there's no explanation for the tears. We call it depression. 
Then there's this reproach that's also mentioned in verse 8. And here, I think, at least here in this context, I think reproach means shame on account of guilt. Sometimes this word reproach means shame or dishonor because these people are being misrepresented and maligned wrongly. But here I think it means guilt and the shame that comes from guilt. Remember, Isaiah was writing all this to a persistently sinful people in the 8th century who were God's people and they they knew better. They should have known better. And so God was about to make his people, Judah, a public spectacle before the nations. God would not only discipline them in front of nations like Babylon, but he would use the nation of Babylon to subjugate his people for over 70 years. So if anyone would know something of this kind of reproach, it would be these people. And yet it's something that we all have, something we all should know, guilt and the shame that comes from our guilt. We all feel guilty because we are. Kids, you know this. Has this ever happened to you where mom or dad call your name from another room and your heart leaps a little bit? You think, oh no, what did I do? And you didn't do anything right then. Mom was just calling you in to, to, I don't know, to tell you that the peanut butter and jelly sandwich was ready. That's all she meant by calling your name. But why do you feel like you might be in trouble? Uh, Because you know you've done some stuff, right? (laughs) Some stuff that you think and hope that mom and dad don't know about, but what if they find out about it and they call your name to deal with it. (laughs) Now, don't worry, kids. That's the bad news. There's good news to come. Our passage is about good news. But we have to fully understand and appreciate the bad news before we can fully get the good news. And if we don't know the bad news, if we can't see the bad news, if we can't feel the bad news, well, that just proves one other grief that's mentioned in our passage, and it's in verse 7. There's a covering, a veil, that is cast over all peoples. I think this is referring to spiritual blindness, the kind talked about in 2 Corinthians 3 where Paul says that when the Bible is read among the Jewish people in the synagogues who haven't yet come to believe in Christ, a veil is over their eyes to keep them from seeing Christ. Or as Paul puts it a chapter later in 2 Corinthians 4, that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they don't see the glory of the gospel in Christ. They can't see it. There's a veil there, a covering Now, in some ways, this is the most subtle and the most problematic of all these griefs mentioned in Isaiah 25. Many don't know it's a problem. They don't know it's their reality. And that's the very nature of spiritual blindness. It's like water to a fish. 
You don't know you have it if that's all you're in. But this explains why people reject the gospel, reject the good news. This is why people reject the good Savior. This is why they just can't get it, even when it's explained to them clearly. It's a very real problem. We should be grieved by it. We should feel the weight of it in this fallen world. Those are our present griefs, at least mentioned here in this passage. Now, secondly, let's think about the future glories. And here's the good news. On this mountain, verse 6 says, God will do extraordinary things. Notice verse 7 also refers to this mountain. On this mountain. What's the mountain? Well, let's just call it Mount Zion. Mount Zion. For a time, that meant the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that physical geographical place. In the New Testament, Mount Zion refers to the realm of God's rule. It's God's people in God's presence wherever they find themselves geographically. And ultimately, Mount Zion is heaven. For now, let's not focus on the location, just the action, God's action here. What, what will he do? Death will be swallowed up forever. Death swallowed up, verse 8. Swallowed up. That's vivid language. It's not just he'll do away with it. He'll swallow it up. It's no match for him. The defeat of death for God is as easy as you swallowing a bite of brownies. This hasn't happened yet. He hasn't swallowed up death like this just yet. No, death still happens. And this says God will swallow up death forever. But once he does swallow it up, it will be forever. Gone, done, no more. It's as good as done even now. It's as good as done because God said it would come to pass. The amount of years since this was announced to now, the present, where he hasn't yet swallowed up death forever, the amount of years is no indication that the promise is untrustworthy. You trust it because God said it. The Lord has said it. We can trust his word, even if we're sometimes surprised by the timing of his plan. We can trust God's word and this specific promise even more now because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. This is what the cross and resurrection were all about. Jesus died on the cross as a substitutionary payment for our sins. We'll come back to that in a bit. But he was raised to life in victory, conquering Satan and sin and death. So Jesus could say, after his resurrection, I am the living one. Behold, I died, and I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death 
and Hades, Revelation 1. And it's because of Christ's resurrection back then that we can now be assured of our future resurrection and eternal life when he returns. That was the whole point that Paul was making, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, which Byron read for us earlier. Paul says there that we know that Jesus will conquer death in the end for those of us who believe because he's already conquered death in his resurrection. Can you imagine a day when death is swallowed up? It is no more. It has no more victories. And there is no sting of death anywhere. Can you imagine? We're not there yet, but that's what's coming. That's what's coming. We should think a lot about that. Tears will be wiped away on that day. He will wipe away tears from all faces. Describing not only the end of sorrow, but but notice how personal that is. Not just sadness will end, but he will wipe away tears from faces. Every parent knows what it's like when their toddler runs and trips and skins their knee and comes to mom or dad with, with tears running down their faces and mom or dad holds that child and hugs them and wipes those tears from those cute, sweet little cheeks. Our heavenly father will care for us like that. And then he will say to us something that no parent can say to any of their children. He will say, that will never happen again. It will never happen again. It's done. That's it. No more. No more hurt, sorrow, or worry, or anxiety, or fretting, or sadness, or depression. That's your last tear. (laughs) The Apostle John got a glimpse of that day when he got that heavenly vision and revelation In chapter 21, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death, no more. Tears, wiped away. Reproach, gone. Taken away. Remember, remember, reproach is shame on account of guilt, on account of sin. How can guilt and shame, the guilt and shame of our sin, just be taken away? How does God do that? What what does he do with it? Does he simply sweep it under a, a cosmic rug? Does he simply look the other way? Does he simply tisk? shake his head, smile, and because he's a nice guy, he lets us in. No, he is merciful, but he is also just. And there had to be a reckoning 
for God to take away our reproach. A payment had to be made. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. The payment of sin is death. And that's why Jesus had to die. Isaiah foresaw this as well. It's in chapter 53, perhaps the most well-known chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. Surely he, this one to come, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief as he makes his soul an offering for guilt. Well, that's what Jesus did 700 years later upon that cross. That's why he came. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why he was born. Even at his birth, the writing was on the wall. The purpose and mission for which he came were made clear in his very name. Not only Emmanuel, God with us, but Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, which means God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. Reproach taken away. In that day, notice verse 9, the wait will be over. It will be said on that day, behold, this is, our, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. One day, the wait will be over for those who have trusted in Jesus. Their salvation will be complete. Sin and death and sadness will be done away with forever. They will be with their God. They will behold him. They will worship him. They will, as it says in that verse, verse 9, they will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Christian, do you think about the Lord's return as you should? And the answer is no, none of us do. All of us need to think about it more. I am blown away how much of the New Testament talks about Jesus' second coming. How often the New Testament writers had to encourage the suffering saints of the first century with the hope of Jesus' return. It's in every book of the New Testament. Some books have it in every chapter of that book. It's, it's, in, it's, the, it's the motivation behind so much of what we're called to do. It's the antidote to so much of what we shouldn't do and how we shouldn't think in those letters. You know, some things we wait for, and we're disappointed a little bit when it comes. Kids, you know this about Christmas, if you've had a handful of Christmases already that you've gone through. You were hoping for this or that present, and maybe you didn't get it. Or you got it. And then what? I remember one Christmas, I wanted this G.I. Joe, I don't know, aircraft carrier thing. It was literally like this big. Too big to put in the bathtub. What do you do? 
We didn't have a pool. I'm not sure why I wanted this thing, but I wanted it. It was like slightly above the usual limit for Christmas presents in the Kelly household. I got it. It was great for like a half hour. That's it? Now what do I, what do, I do with this big boat? Heaven won't be like that. Heaven won't disappoint. The descriptions of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22 are put in symbol-laden ways because it's so beyond our comprehension. It's like gold and like that and like pearls, and, but it's far beyond anything we can imagine. It won't disappoint. We will feast in that day. Go back to verse 6 of our passage. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Do you know the Bible has many feasts that kind of foreshadow what will be the final, ultimate feast and celebration in heaven? You think of Genesis 49, which we saw not too long ago as a church, where the lion of the tribe of Judah will come, and yes, he will reign, but remember, he will come with blessings. He'll be rich. He's got more wine than you can handle. You think of John 2, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana where the wine was running low and then Jesus miraculously turned water into wine and hundreds of gallons of fine wine were provided for this week-long party. That, that, was, that was not just a divine magic trick, not just something to impress the, the masses there that day, and not just a kind gesture for the embarrassed father of the wedding. No, it was theologically significant. Jesus was proving that he was that Genesis 49 ruler who comes with abundant blessing. And then you come to Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad for the day of the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. We will feast. And this will be for all peoples. You see that in our passage? In verse 6, it says, all peoples. And, and twice in verse 7, it says again, all peoples. And then in verse 8, all the earth. While Isaiah was writing to national Israelites in the 8th century primarily, much of what he has to say, especially about future events, involves the nations, the peoples, the earth, the whole world. This consummate salvation and this heavenly celebration is for all peoples. John, the apostle, also saw this. In Revelation 5, he says... He saw angels worshiping Jesus around the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and kindred and people and nation. 
Now, verses like that don't suggest that every human being will be in heaven. There is a hell. We flee to Jesus in this life or else we'll be separated from his glorious presence in eternity. But there is hope for any and all right now. No one is excluded from these amazing reversals of the curse and blessings in a new heaven and new earth. No one is excluded based on race or gender or geography or wealth. There will be a global representation in heaven at this eternal feast with God. So the welcome is for all. The invitation is for any who would find themselves needy. So later in Isaiah, God calls like this, come, come, you who have no money, without money, without price, come. You who are thirsty, take of my water. Buy my wine and milk without money and without price. Anyone can come. There are only two conditions mentioned in that passage. You have to be thirsty, hungry, and you have to come without money. You come with empty hands, or you don't come at all, but you, you who have no money, you who are hungry and thirsty for God, Come. Which leads us to this last thing to consider as we take one more pass through the passage. Present foretastes of the future. We've considered the present griefs and the promise of future glories, but what about now? Is there any encouragement now besides the hope of what's to come? Well, yes. If we have responded to God's invitation to come, if we have come to believe and put our trust in this one Jesus who accomplishes all that Isaiah 25 promises for us, then we will begin to experience a foretaste of the future now in the present. It means that the veil of spiritual blindness has already been removed. I mentioned in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan blinds the eyes of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of the gospel. But just two verses later, Paul says that we believers, we who've experienced the, the grace of God in Christ, it's because the God who spoke creation light into existence back at the beginning of the Bible he has spoken spiritual light into our dark hearts so that we see the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God conquers spiritual blindness. Even now, this is true of everyone who is now a Christian. It is true of everyone who will become a Christian it's because of God's grace. 
I, I can't make that happen. I, I don't have a, a pastor's spiritual flashlight that I can shine into your heart so that you get the gospel. I can't do that. It's God's work. He must do it. And that's why we pray. We don't just talk to people about becoming a Christian and what the gospel is. We don't just try to convince them. We pray for God to do what only he can do. Only he can open eyes to see and ears to hear. But you, who haven't yet come to believe in Jesus, you are no passive agent in all this. You are to hear the invitation, sense your need, see his offer in grace and glory, and respond. And if you're not there yet, you say, I, I got questions. Keep asking your questions. Hang out with a Christian friend. Get to know one of our pastors who'd love to spend some time talking about the Bible with you. Keep coming to a church like this where you hear the gospel preached from a variety of different parts of the Bible week in and week out. And maybe perhaps begin reading the Bible for yourself. I love what John Wesley said back in the 1700s. He said, I am a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit that's come from God and is returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf until a few moments hence I am no more seen and I drop into an unchangeable eternity. And I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore and God has condescended to teach us the way. He's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book, Wesley said. I'd love to give you the book if you don't have one and help you start to read it. The veil removed, reproach removed. Guilt and shame, as we've already said, can be removed on account of Jesus' cross and resurrection. The cross was a payment for sin. He died for those who deserve the payment of death because of their sins. And we believe even in the now, not just in heaven, even in the now, reproach, guilt, and shame can be removed, banished, done, settled. We believe that you can get settled with God today. On this point we differ from our Roman Catholic friends. They don't believe that. We believe in assurance of salvation. We believe in trusting in what Christ did in his finished work on the cross and resurrection and resting in that, not anything we could bring to the table. Reproach removed. And if reproach is removed, and heaven awaits, then now, even now, death is transformed. And so yes, we grieve at the loss of loved ones. First Thessalonians 4 tells us this. We grieve now, but, but not like those without hope. We grieve with hope. Those who go on from this life go to be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1, 
to depart from this world is to be with Christ, which is far much better. Hebrews 2 speaks of Jesus destroying the power of death to deliver those who had a fear of death their whole lives, to deliver them from that slavery. It doesn't mean they don't die. It doesn't mean death won't be hard, perhaps even painful, certainly tragic. But for the Christian, death is transformed so that it is now a passageway to more of Christ's presence. Charles Spurgeon, the the pastor of the 1800s, he says, death in itself is terrible, but death in the case of believers is another matter. To them, it is not death to die. It's a departure out of this world to the Father. Death then is changed. It is no longer a legal infliction, but it comes to us as a covenant blessing. Which means that joy and peace and comfort can be something that we experience even now. Even amidst sorrows. The Apostle Paul could, I love this phrase, he just said in passing of his own experience, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's mysterious. There's a juxtaposition there. There's tension, no doubt. And yet I think almost every Christian could tell you of times in their lives where sorrow and joy were inextricably linked and mixed, where hope was more sure than it ever has been, while heartache has been the hardest they've ever known. Joy. Mysteriously, those who have all this, they have have already come to Mount Zion. This is in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, remember, on this mountain. What mountain? Mount Zion. Mount Zion one day, that's heaven. But for now, listen, Hebrews 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of saints enrolled in heaven. You have come to God and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. To come to Christ means to come to all of his benefits and gifts. You've already come to Mount Zion. And so there's already a feast going on now there's a sense in which we feast with the Lord whenever we remember the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper that communion meal yes we look back at his death thanking him for what he's done but we commune with our Savior and await the day when that little pilgrim meal we partake in the Lord's Supper is fuller realized in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You could say that every meal, in fact, that is shared among Christians is a kind of celebration of what we already have. We have reasons to celebrate as Christians. 
We can go our way, eat our bread, drink our wine with a merry heart, Ecclesiastes 9 says, for God has already approved us. We have reason to celebrate every meal that we share with each other. A celebration of what God has done for us, of who he is for us, and what awaits us. The future, Christian, is already here. It's a foretaste of what's to come. Yes, the real thing, in all its fullness, beyond our imagination, will come. That's still ahead. Until that day, we keep waiting, we keep waiting, we keep waiting. And we remind ourselves that it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. One day, the waiting will be done. Death will be swallowed up. Tears wiped from our faces. We will behold our God. We'll be with him forever and ever. We will rejoice and be glad unlike we have never before. Well, let's pray with longing and hope for that day when we will be with the Lord like that. Oh, Lord, we pray with John, come, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe what your word says. Help us to live in light of it. Help us, Lord, to share it with others Oh, there are so many who haven't yet come to believe. There are so many parts of this world that haven't yet joined us in worship. And so we want, to, we want to be a part of your mission in this world, Lord. We want to join you in reconciling others to you. Help us, Lord. Help us to feast now in your presence as we sing as we await the day when we will feast with you in glory together forever and ever. Amen. Mm -hmm.